Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have somebody who uh, is literally one degree of separation from one of my true heroes, but we have Dr. Deborah McDowell, and um, she's with the Julian Bond Papers Project, so we'll get into all of that stuff. But first, let me ask you, how you doing? How you feeling? That 2023 is moving rapidly, is it not? 2023 is moving quite rapidly, and and when you are in your eighth decade, as I am, Time just seems to be spinning <laughs> faster and faster. Not, you ain't in your eighth decade. I am in my eighth decade. Well, the way we tell our ages in Alabama, if you're in your 30s, you're in your fourth decade. If you're in your 20s, you and so forth. So well, I'm you don't, in my you, 70s, which regardless means I'm in my however, with regardless of the math and how the math is math, and you don't look anywhere near any of them decades. Well, then you're very kind to say because my joints tell me that I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we start each one of our decade decades, each one of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you're an academic and author and the director of some very important Black archives at the University of Virginia that we'll talk about in a book. But talk to me about your career arc from your first role in teaching at Kobe College to your work now at UVA. Oh my, yes, that's been a long time. I began my career in the late 70s, in 1979 to be exact, at Kobe College, a liberal arts college in Maine. And I worked there for about eight years. I was tenured there, and then I moved to UVA, uh, where I've been since 1987. Uh, I came here as a professor of English, uh, and then um, several years later, I became the director of the Carter G. Woodson Institute, which is a research institute and an academic department. And I ran that for 13 years. Uh, and now I'm kind of easing my way into retirement, but not before I get the Julian Bond Papers Project uh, on a secure footing and especially with extramural funding. Well, we will talk about that because I was fortunate enough to be one of the last, one of the last interviews, I think, in his explorations of black leadership. Yes, I remember that. Mm -hmm. And I, I got a chance to stay. Is that the time? What do they call it? The Thomas Jefferson thing right there on campus where the kids or the dormitories or the apartments kind of are? Oh, in the oh yes. Well, you maybe you stayed in one of the pavilions, um, uh, the Colonnade Club, probably. Correct. Yes. 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 Uh -huh. yes. Before, before we get to the project that you run, you're also a part of the Carter G. Woodson Institute of African-American and African Studies. For people who may not know who Carter G. Woodson was, please just just pause this episode and go use the Google if you don't know. Yes. Um, <laughs> what do you do at the Carter G. Woodson Institute? Talk well, about now I'm a regular faculty member, but from 19, I mean, 2008 until 2021, I ran the show. <laughs> I was the director. Uh, and I am happy to say that um, I inherited this position um, from a colleague, Reg the late Reginald Butler. But before Reginald Butler, um, Armstead Robinson, a Civil War historian, had founded the Institute in 1981. So Carter, and he, it, it, it began as the Institute of African American Studies. But during uh, his tenure as director, and that was well before I arrived, uh, Armstead petitioned to change the name from the Institute for African American Studies 
to the Carter G. Woodson Institute. Mm. And his justification for the name change is that Carter G. Woodson was not only um, kind of commonly known as the father of Black history, but he was a native son of Virginia, specifically of Buckingham County. And so uh, Armstead believed that since our institute was situated in Virginia. We needed to honor this one of Virginia's most illustrious sons. Uh, so, mm. uh, well, that that's that's important. It seems like everything you touch over there is important work. It leads me to the Julian Bond Papers Project. And for those who don't know, like you're new to the show, I absolutely love and adore Julian, Uncle Julian. He was. Um, just an amazing, an amazing spirit and bright man. Morehouse College and um, former chair of the board, amongst other things. And I would always tell people this, Dr. McDowell. I, I even wrote it in my book. I said, I'd much rather be um, compared to um, Barack, uh, Julian Bond than Barack Obama. And I don't say that as any slight to yeah. Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Julian, pa- Julian Bond Papers Project. What is it? Well, it's uh, a digital archive in the simplest terms that Julian uh, bequeathed his papers to the University of Virginia and specifically the Shirley and Albert Small Special Collections Library. So there are close to 50,000 documents that he left to um the special collections it's a massive archive and so um a group of us decided that given the importance of julian bunn to practically every aspect of u.s democracy we might wish to name um that given his uh centrality his significance that these pe- uh, papers needed to be digitized. Mm-hmm. That is, so one would not have to drive to Virginia or fly to Virginia. That we thought, given Bond's history, his life, his investments, his um, predilections, that we should have a, the archive be digitized and searchable, free and accessible to the public. So that anyone wanting to know what Julian Bunn might have said about voting rights or may have mm-hmm. said about the environment. Because they will make some stuff up about what you said or what they think you said out here in these streets. Yes, that's true. But Julian has left us a massive archive of very, very important work. So we're about to launch publicly the first phase of that work uh, by focusing on selected speeches. And one of the things we noted almost immediately is that the, the speeches Julian Byrne wrote in the 70s, the 80s, up until his death, that you could take any one of those speeches and if you didn't know say that it was delivered in 1975 it would it could be delivered today mm. by anyone else because the issues that he's calling attention to remain uh, relevant retain their resonance and most importantly retain their urgency uh for our lives today so um, we are really very, very happy. We'd like to talk about the pillars of the archive, and that is those areas that especially commanded Julian Bunn's attention, 
um, democratic, democratic rights, voting uh, in particular, the environment, uh, LGBTQ rights, the economy, education, health and well-being, that these are the pillars of the archive because these are the issues to which Julian Bond devoted his um, life and attention and particularly uh, as an activist. Wow. Where do you think Julian Bond fits in the pantheon of American thinkers? Oh, um, you know, that's a very good question. Well, and before I tr try to dive into an answer, I must confess I'm biased <laughs> towards <laughs> Julian. <laughs> Julian was, uh, I was very proud to count Julian as a friend. And so I would think that he ranks in the pantheon of anyone thinking about the rights and privileges uh, and perils uh, of democracy. That uh, Julian uh, was a teacher, uh, but he wasn't just any kind of teacher. We estimate here at Virginia that over the course of the time he taught here, he must have reached about 5,000 students. And what those students would have encountered was um, a teacher who was a thinker. Yes, we like to think that in the best of all worlds, all teachers are thinkers, right? Well, we know that ain't true. I mean, but we know that's not true. And Julian was a voracious reader. That's another thing we notice in these speeches. You take any one of these speeches and you will see the extent to which it is heavily, meticulously researched. <laughs> he has read uh, what leading economists are saying, psychiatrists are saying, and he is that kind of thinker who cannot be put in a box. Now, I know we use that metaphor a lot and, and sometimes overuse it, but I think it's entirely appropriate when we're talking about Julian as thinker, because as a person who sought to analyze material conditions uh, so as to intervene and hopefully transform uh, people's material conditions, mm -hmm. he thought he needed to draw on a range of disciplines, all right? So while he taught in the history department, let's say, he was not the kind of thinker who assumed that only history was essential. Only the discipline of history was essential to analyzing the issues that commanded his attention. No, he would need to draw on the work of economists. He would need to draw on the work even of uh, literary scholars. I happen to be a literary scholar, uh, but Julian was also a poet. Uh, he knew he would need to draw on music, right? One of the famous lectures he gave uh, to alumni here, it became so popular that they asked him to give it each year, was on rhythm and blues and rock and roll and the ways in which those two musical forms met uh, and together uh, challenged and invited the youth of America to think of transcending and how they might transcend the color line, you know? It wasn't just enough for him 
to write about the essential needs of uh, uh, Black um, urban dwellers in particular for mental health accommodations, he's going to read psychiatry. He's going, so when we talk about him as a thinker, and I should also insert here, in my own way of thinking and in my philosophy of thinking, um, I lose more interest more and more in ranking, right? Yes. <laughs> right. But I absolutely, if anybody forced me to, I would say Julian Bond is one of our foremost thinkers. And certainly if you wanted to be, to circumscribe things a bit, certainly for anyone wanting to know about the history of the modern civil rights movement and all of the events leading up to that, uh, you must read Julian Bond. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shut Off. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Let me ask you this question. I want you to talk about the nuts and bolts of what it takes to accurately capture a full life like Julian Bond. Like, what does it take to track down the decades of speeches, writings, et cetera? And then how do you di digitize that? Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the digitizing is uh, done through technological mechanisms we have. And luckily for me, I'm the dreamer of our project uh, and one without a whole lot of technological facility. Uh, and I invited our tech person on and she says, oh, no, Professor McDowell, we only want you to represent the project. Uh, but tracking down the speeches, again, that part was solved for us in great measure. That is because of all the documents Julian left us. Now, what we will be doing later this summer and early fall is going to a small um, group of other archives where there are documents here and there, but not amounting to the massive archive we have at Virginia. So we are indeed fortunate that we did not have to go mm. scouring all yeah. over the world. And, and, and it's amazing how meticulously well-kept these documents are. Well, right? He was a meticulous man too. He, so he absolutely was. So Julian had done a lot of our work for us. Now, I don't think that uh, he he wasn't dictating how these materials would be uh, digitized and any of that. No, 
we have worked to define those terms. Uh, but he has certainly made our work uh, infinitely easier for having given us, say, five different versions of speech X, <laughs> right? Uh, we have his handwriting. So even up until the moment that he mounts the podium to give a speech, he's still changing uh, what he wants to say. So um, the work of digitization is the work of people who have expertise in what we call digital editing. Uh, and so we are doing this project in collaboration with another entity at UVA called the Center for Digital Editing. And so that um, um, center uh, has worked for decades and decades on papers of the quote unquote founding fathers the Washington Papers, the Madison Papers, they're all here. So digital editing, and I would certainly say this for any young person who might happen upon this podcast, is as you are casting about for what you might study and how your studies might result in remunerative um, employment, uh, digital, digital editing is this wide open, wonderful field uh, for people who have interest in the digital. Um, and so um, people get degrees in digital editing, um, again, for purposes of making papers available. Because, you know, when we think about archives, and especially when we think about archives as somehow the special preserve of scholars, right? Uh, you know, no ordinary person walks off the street, say, into the Beinecke Library at Yale, right? Um, that um, you you get yourself to New Haven, Connecticut, you make prior arrangements, you go into the archive, boxes are brought to you. And that certainly, that way of researching will be with us in perpetuity. But what's unique about our project and other uh, comparable digi digital projects, it's that from the convenience of your own computer, you can go into this archive. Oh, and great. yes, and it will be free to you. There you go. You don't have to pay for a ticket to get to anywhere. It is if you have internet connection, you will have access to these documents. And, and we're happy about that because we believe that given Julian's investments in democracy, this is the only kind of project. That we could do. <laughs> that brings me to my next question. Like we're in an era of understanding how fragile democracy is and book bans yes. and manufactured controversy around critical race theory. Um, what does Julian Bond teach us about how we should navigate the moment that we're in? Well, you know, Julian, one, to be involved, to be alert. I am not going to use that word that has been commandeered by the radical right and used mm -hmm. as another slur. I know uh, what you're talking about. Yes, I completely side with those who say that term has become a quote unquote respectable way of calling you a nigger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, exactly. 
Yeah. And so I'm not going to even invoke that term, which Black people uh, use, but as so much of our language gets uh, appropriated and misappropriated for purposes for which we never intended. But I would say Julian's take on the fragility of our democracy now, uh, we can go back to, again, some of these uh, early writings in which not only is he dissecting uh, what uh, contributes to the fragility of democracy, let's just take voting rights. That's not the only thing we might talk about. But he wrote repeatedly about, about voting rights, about voter suppression. I mean, he is calling for in the 70s uh, National Election Day where people are off from work. And if they can't do that, have voting on Sunday, you know, the souls to the polls that everybody's clamping down on. So he 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 looked at the efforts to suppress the black vote and and then threaten democracy. But he also challenged black people not to be lulled into calm. And he challenged them specifically not to be lulled into uh, a state of calm and relaxation um, um, by produced by saying, oh, in his words, which many others have used, we have black faces in high places. And he says, you can't be lulled by that that if there is anything that is imperiling the Black stake in democracy, it is that we have lost our will to action. And so he would still be challenging people when we held a memorial symposium in his honor in 2016, we titled the symposium after a snippet of a speech he gave. We termed the symposium, Keep the Movement Coming On. And it was a line in a speech he gave at a Martin Luther King celebration uh, years ago where he's lamenting the loss of the momentum and the energy that people had in the 60s uh, that uh, he called for there a will to action toward movement, toward the kind of dedication that typified the 60s, right? So on this particular, just like assaultive turn to the right in uh, the fascistic um, um, experiences we're having now, uh, Julian was not a cynic. And he was not uh, one just to lament. He would say, get off your rusty dusties and start working, all right? Mm -hmm. That this, he took on uh, conservative forces, confronted. uh, And I think what is happening in Florida demands not trying to resurrect the uh, college board, Uh, Because I think given his understandings of educational inequities, he would be the first to say that the college board is implicated 
in those inequities. And so we don't need to try to save the college board. And we need to take to the streets. He would say, we need to get on the school boards, right? Again, I'm just talking about this one thing. Or if it's about voting, we need to um, um, storm the citadels of power. Yeah. We need to storm the citadels of power. We do not need and we should not uh, expect for us to realize the promises of democracy if we don't seize them, if we don't keep the movement coming on, if we don't reignite that very dedication uh, to struggle that brought us to the illusion of inclusion. <laughs> Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Look, I, one of my last questions for you before I let you go is, is SNCC helped to formulate his more formative years. Yes. Uh, talk, about, talk about the impact of SNCC on who Julian Bond was and his the way that he thought. It was powerful. It was absolutely powerful. I could choose many things to isolate, but let's let me isolate one thing. Uh, people in SNCC, the youth of SNCC, because we need to remind ourselves that Julian is a college student when he starts in the movement and when SNCC is founded and he is SNCC's communication director. Mm -hmm. uh, but SNCC members revered Ella Baker. Uh, no question. Because it was Ella Baker who taught them above all else. Uh, strong people don't lead, don't need strong leaders. That at Ella Baker's feet, they learn their res the responsibilities of participation. They learn the responsibilities of going to the people. The people don't need some highfalutin person in a suit to tell them about their conditions. They know what their conditions are and they have a good sense of how they can intervene in them, right? And so uh, if we take Julian's own campaign beyond SNCC for the Georgia legislature, he brought what he learned from SNCC 
into that campaign, walking the dusty roads, knocking on people's doors to ask them what they needed from a politician, right? Mm -hmm. Not to tell them, I'm going to give you a chicken in every pot, but to really listen to what the people needed because they knew above anyone else what they needed, all right? So it's the SNCC is the idea of, of participation, uh, um, a kind of, um, I won't say a kind of confrontational resistance to hierarchy, but clearly an impatience with hierarchy. Um, that Julian was wont to say uh, about this period in uh, to which he uh, contributed so much that what brought the changes, legal and otherwise, um, during the civil rights movement was, and this is his phrase, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Of course. And so he learned from SNCC, right? That ordinary people can do extraordinary things. Um, he learned from SNCC the importance of study. You have to study, you have to understand uh, what you're confronting. Um, so um, in the kind of, I think on an interpersonal level, uh, SNCC, he learned from SNCC the importance of coalitions, right? Yep. The importance of people working across various lines of difference to, cons to um, uh, create a common end that would spell the greatest good for the greatest number, not the greatest good for an elite core, but the greatest good for the greatest number, I would say those are among the things he learned from, from SNCC, apart from a certain fearlessness in never say die. <laughs> Look, I, I could talk to you all day about the Julian Bond papers, but the most important question I have for you is how can people support you? There are a lot of people who listen to this show who might have a couple of dollars in their pocket. How can people support the work that well, you Well, you know, I can do that. I can tell you right away, you can certainly go directly to the page of the Carter G. Woodson Institute. And right on that page, you will see a button, donate, all right? And then you can specify that you want to donate to the Julian Bond Papers Project, right? But people who may not have uh, the wherewithal to contribute financially can continue to contribute to the transcription process. So that we have, uh, we began this project with two crowdsourced events. That's oh. people from all walks of life, <laughs> you know, wherever they were. Uh, before COVID hit, we had sites all around Charlottesville, coffee shops, libraries, you name it, where people, if they had a laptop, they could go on to the archive and transcribe a document. Now, that's not the end of it, because then we have to do all kinds of editing and uh, provide assurances of quality control. But simply getting a document from its state in the archive 
to the preface to digitization. People can transcribe. So we have had um, hundreds and hundreds of, again, ordinary citizens who have gone to the archive and begun the work of transcription. Uh, and that um, that is also a way to contribute to the project. Um, anyone can contact me personally at D-E-M, the number eight, the letter Z, as in zebra, at virginia.edu. Virginia has to be spelled all the way out. So if people have questions, they can certainly contact me. Um, we um, are excited about this project and especially about its public launch this coming Wednesday. We regret oh. that this will not be live streamed, um, but once it is, the event is over, we will uh, place the tape on the Woodson Institute's YouTube channel. And so there, uh, anyone can um, vi visit the event in which we're it's going open to democracy. That's what that's what open source democracy. That's what Julian wanted. He wanted and that and, and and that is why, as the PI of this project, I always made it clear this this project has to be the fruits of these efforts have to be made free and available to the public. So wow. we're very happy, and I should uh, thank one of our sponsors or our primary sponsor is the NHPRC. That's the National Historic Commission's <laughs> NHP Records Commission, all right? The NHPRC, which is a federal program, uh, has funded our project for the last three years. Uh, but given, to repeat, the massiveness of the archive, we will need much more financial support in order to work our ways through uh, close to 50,000 documents. Wow, wow. Well, look, Dr. Deborah McDowell, you have a lot of work left to do, so I'm mm -hmm. gonna leave you be, but the work that you're doing is more than admirable. Anytime I have an opportunity to highlight the work of Uncle Julian, I appreciate it. Oh, we are so grateful to you. joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast, certainly. Yeah, we are grateful to you. And if ever your travels bring you to Charlottesville, again, let us know. Uh, and um, again, thank you so much for highlighting this project and um, uh, in introducing perhaps some to the extraordinary work of my friend and your uncle, <laughs> Horace Julian Bond. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Have a blessed day. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. Uh,